0: Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game with me, Russell Guyver, and my co-host, Peter Marsh, who's back. Hello, Peter. Russ, I think you're going to describe yourself as a beautiful man for a minute. <laughs> Absolutely no chance of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have got a, a man who's certainly beautiful in many ways, a club legend, joining us for our second conversation for what will no doubt constitute parts three and four of this Dick Knight special. It is the man himself, Dick Knight. Welcome back, Dick. Good evening, Russ. Good evening, Peter. Good evening, Jeff, everyone listening. Excellent. We've we've already had some we're talking off air as well. You've had some feedback at Newcastle away the other day. Um lots of people seem to be enjoying the podcast, so we're really glad and um hope everyone will enjoy this conversation and these two parts as well. Um so um yes, it's great to have you back on. We were talking in the past about your your Albion story, your backstory, um, your career coming and going between the States, uh, the battle against Archer and various other things, trying to get to with Dean as well. Lots to talk about there and still lots more to talk about now. Um, in this episode, what we wanted to do really was to get into Withdean in a bit more detail, talk about uh, really how how you found running the club in such constrictive circumstances how how that was um we'll get on to maybe some favorite moments and some bad moments if you want to talk about them later but but first of all just um once you once you got us back to with dean um which is a fantastic achievement i missed the um the six-nil game with Darren Freeman, but I was at the friendly um, against Nottingham Forest, which I think was the first game, wasn't it back there? And there was a real, really big feel-good factor. It was a nice, blazing hot, sunny day. I took some friends who were sort of just kind of uh, not not really fans of the Albion, but they were um, interested in the story. Took them along, and, and everyone had a great time. And I think for all the struggles, uh, for all the troubles trying to get planning permission for am- the annex, which we'll get onto later on down the line, um, we did actually have four promotions in those 12 years. We had some good times. Um, so I'll certainly be asking you about that a bit later on. But first of all, I mean, how, how was it running running the club at Withdean with those constrictions, you know, the limited capacity, the limited opportunity for commercial opportunities, um, how was that? Well, um, <clears throat> first of all,
2: Russ, I'll correct you because we never really actually ran the club at Withdean. <laughs> we, <weren't allowed, laughs> we weren't allowed to go there apart from on match day, um, and even then, if it was an evening game, there was a lot of frantic clearing away in the, for example, the boardroom, the so-called boardroom at Withdean, actually was a children's crash in the daytime. And, um, yeah, unbelievable. You know, Ken Bates, who many people have heard of as being, uh, you know, quite a uh, sort of volatile football club chairman, uh, he came there with Leeds to a game, one eve midweek game, and um, he came in and into this boardroom, you know, while we we're still most clearing away. And he saw he saw all these alphabet figures that had been being used by the kids, you know, an hour or so before, hour and a half or so before. And he <laughs> looked at me, he looked at me and he looked down at that and he said, my God, Dick. He said, I mean, he actually used a few other words, which I can't really repeat here <laughs> uh, to a family audience. But um, he said, I knew you had problems. He said, but I never realized it was this bad. And he said, um, you know, where is the actual um, boardroom? I said, Kent, this is the boardroom, you know. And he he was just stupefied that um, we were managing to, you know, we were playing the championship. That was the first season we got to the championship. So, you know, and there were other wonderful times like that, you know, when Derby County came there. And if you remember the Italian striker, Ravinelli, uh, who was, you know, an international player, very good player. He was out limbering up and um, on the pitch before the game. And he said to their coach, you know, we get on the bus, go to the stadium. And, um, you know, their coach, whoever it was at that, I can't remember who the coach was, but he said, you know, this is the stadium, this is where we're playing, you know. All of a sudden, you know, about three minutes later, Raven Nelly pulled up with a so-called hamstring strain. He didn't fancy playing You know, at the Theatre of Trees uh, right off the game. But I thought, if we could get that working on a regular basis, we could play weakened teams. So if we put you know sort of slippery grass round the outside of um sorry, my daughter's phoning me from America um so no, I mean so ravenelli didn't fancy that um so there were all sorts of ways that you know we was the most idiosyncratic ground in in league football history i mean i i'm, I'm I may have even told the previous episode of this podcast that. I used to call the away end the Worthing end because it virtually was in Worthing. Um, and we should have issued binoculars to all the away fans, you know, to see their end that behind that goal, let alone the further goal in the east end of the ground. Um, but no, there were wonderful times there. But, um, and as you said, Russ, you know, we actually, it was the most successful period in the club's history we had four promotions including three titles in that period you know i'd never realized obviously <laughs> i thought we'd be there three years at the most You finished up we were there 12 years um fighting all the time for the stadium and um, but meanwhile you know doing pretty well on the pitch of course in reality playing in the uh, championship we were punching so far above, our, uh, punching above our weight, but our, our weight was you know, sort of, um, shall we say, pea shooter size against cannons of the rest of the league. You know, we the, my budget was one, my playing budget was one sixth of the average in the whole of that league. The average, so you know, we we dragged the average down by our one sixth but we were only one sixth the size. That was because 50% of the revenue, it was only, you know, six and a half thousand or it went up slightly to seven. We managed to increase a few more uh, seats, you know, as each season went by and the prolonged, uh, the stay became, all, you know, more prolonged. Um, but it was, it was, you know, we had so many extra costs involved of protecting the area. You know, the stewarding, the no fly zone, sorry, the no parking zone, um, and um, all of that, and the subsidies we provided to the fans, you know, in terms of free public transport uh, coming from a certain area all around, you know, that was included in the price of the ticket. Um, so, you know, but we lost over 50, just over 50%. Of our total gate receipts went into these additional costs. So, the average, to, to show you the, how, how this 1 sixth average was, the average in the league in the, in the championship is always, the average gate is always driven by certain big clubs, you know. So, the average in the league was 18,000, the average attendance. Our average attendance was 6,000. Halve it because of all the extra costs we had, which went into, you know, the supporting services specific to Wigdane that we, you know, the rules that have been imposed on us by the local council, local authority, all of them, which were in a sense necessary, but that reduced equivalent, our equivalent gate receipts to 3,000 compared with 18,000. So there's Mm -hmm. your one sixth of the budget. And that's um, ignoring
3: all the corporate stuff as well that other, the bigger stadiums have compared to... Yeah.
2: well, we... Exactly obviously,
3: compared, didn't really...
2: You know, we, we, had, we had no... Uh, co- we had some corporate hospitality and people thoroughly enjoyed it because they were all together. There was no luxury of having their own, you know, lounge or their own uh, booth. You know, we had to put everyone in together. And, of course, what that did is uh, people, you know, met each other... The first time we had this, a group of fans who, who I got to know very well, uh, which Martin called them the Odds and Sods because they were a group of uh, fans that we had to put together on a table, um, and some of them, one or two of them, knew one or two of the others, but there was about a dozen of them, and uh, Martin came up with a name, Odds and Sods, which is a great name, and. Um, you know they they so over the years as our stay we've been you know dragged on uh they became quite a corporate group in terms of you know helping with charity work for the club and so on um and generally you know being great supporters of the team and the club they used to go to away matches um as well and caused always got on well with the home supporters wherever they were um but uh and they even had their own Albion shirt, which was a, a, a not not the- team, not the king shirt but a a light blue shirt with a seagull crest over it which was em, emboldened odds and sods you know that was their <laughs> they they were it was how they demonstrated their loyalty to to the club, so you know <laughs> that's the light hearted side the Downside was, as I say, not being able to get at Whitbean uh during the week. All the operations had to be carried out in the office in down in Brighton, initially in uh Queen's Road. Um and well, basically, and then round the corner in North Road. So it was uh you know, a, a very clinical sort of non footballing atmosphere in the offices, uh clearly, which didn't help. Uh but I think you know what was absolutely vital as far as I was concerned that everyone knew that things would get better. And I'm you know, I kept driving that thought home uh that you know we're gonna we keep improving on the playing side, we're going to get this stadium, uh, despite every obstacle put in our way. Uh you know, we are going to get this stadium. Even I would never have dreamt that it would take us, you know, from the last game at the Goldstone in April 97 to the first game at the Amex in, um, you know, August 2011. That was 14 and a half years. I mean, incredible if you think about it. Um, No other club has been through that kind of uh, extended trauma. Uh, exile in, in Gillingham, in uh, which you know, understandably, some people just couldn't make that trip, or they didn't feel inclined. Uh, either way, we still averaged nearly three thousand there, um, or soccer in the second season. The first season was below that; was about two thousand. Uh, but as the team gradually began to improve. Then we got, but even then, you know, we people had to make a round trip of roughly 150 miles to go and see the team play at home. So it was ludicrous. I had to get the club back to Brighton. Um, there was no other choice but with Dean, you know, the local residents kicked up a lot of fuss initially. Uh again, understandable, but you know, some of them took the their uh, their doom-mongering to ludicrous lengths in terms of, you know, saying there's going to be another Hillsborough disaster or so on, um, which was totally unjust. You know, it was really out of order. Um, And, and of course, by the time we were there, and then we were there year after year rather than just for a couple of years or so, uh, you know, everyone realised that our fans were perfectly well-behaved and there was no such, you know, Marauding through gardens um, and you know generally rampaging around. I may again, I may have told this story, but um, the first game we played against Mansfield at uh, at been the game we won six 0 All the national press were there in 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 big numbers, recording this event. And Prete Drury, who I think was writing at the Sunday Telegraph at that time said that you know watching them normally going to a game, you know, people are all walking along, making quite a lot of noise, chattering away, chatting to you know, there's all a lot of buzz going on. But at Brighton, it's the fans are walking along as if they're and it's like they're creeping past the headmaster's study. You know, it was like so there's no these leafy lanes are yes, there's a lot of people, but they're not making any noise, you know, <laughs> they're creeping along uh, to get to the stadium. So, you know, that whole atmosphere was, it, it created a, a, uh, a, thought, a a unity. It was unique, definitely. Uh, we were, we were fighting against everything in terms of, you know, red tape, the authorities, the football authorities, did nothing to help us. Really, definitely, they didn't. The football league—they made it more difficult, incredibly. Um, you know, we were against the odds on the pitch because of the limited budget, uh, and we had no ground. So, playing at Whitby, you know, was the only way forward for the club. Uh, I didn't have any alternative. But in fact, what what was built from that. What was engendered from that was this incredible team spirit on and off the pitch. I mean, the players were part of it as well because they knew. I sat them down when we a new player came in and said, "You know, the biggest game this t- club is playing is off the pitch. No disrespect to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to get a, this new stadium that we deserve. Every club should have a decent stadium. This this town, this club, you know, has a, a, a has a potential to." Bring in thirty thousand people. I knew that, and that's why, you know, when we briefed the architect of the stadium, um, I I was never in, you know, never in my mind that we would apply, that we would design a stadium for ten thousand. It was always thirty thousand plus, you know, because I knew the potential the club had, and I knew that if we built the stadium and we had a decent team, they would come.
1: You know, people would come. And of course, that's been proven absolutely great. Yeah. You can see how there would have been a a, a picture being built up by maybe some people locally, definitely a lot of people uh, nationally about the club. Should it have such a big stadium? Because you're seeing very small crowds at Gillingham. Actually, of course, those are very impressive numbers because it's two to three thousand away fans effectively in a season where every single game is an away match. So, which is much more of a, budgetary demands than a normal season. So yeah. those are actually brilliant figures. And at Whitdean, you had all the things you've just described, you know, having to tread on eggshells. You don't have any corporate facilities. Most of the stand is, is uh, most of the stadium, for want of a better word, is uh, is uncovered. It's impossible virtually to get a good atmosphere going. The away fans are in a different postcode, as we've sort of alluded to. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> you know, all, all of those things, you know, actually six or 7,000 or whatever it was that was turning up there, is actually pretty impressive, but of course, looking at the bigger picture, people are thinking, well, they're getting six or seven thousand after this long wait to get back to, to, to Sussex for two years. Are they really going to be able to need, are they going to need more than about 10, 11, 12 thousand? And, and even dear old, um, Paul Welsh, um, um, rest in peace. You know, he, he's, um, he was convinced at our Seagulls over London meetings. He traipsed this, this, um, this, um, documents out that he printed out of our statistical our um our attendance statistics over a number of years saying that there was a long period since we'd last had a crowd over a certain amount and he was convinced we wouldn't get the sort of figures that we obviously very very convincingly proved we would get later on
2: um, paul i love paul you know and you know he played a great part in the battle to overthrow archer uh, but he was wrong there. And I remember, him. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I remember him making this case. And I said, Paul, I'm older than you. And I've been there when we've had, you know, 31,000, 32,000. I was in the biggest crowd of all at the Goldstone, which will, you know, the way the Amex is, it's still going to be a record mm. Brighton crowd at home yeah. is going to be at the Goldstone ground." Not at the Amex, uh, but I was in that crowd in uh, you know in 1960 and um, you know, 36,000. So, you know, I knew that if we had a decent team, people would come, you know, because we had such a large catchment area. Um, and I was convinced that if we had a good team, you know, we would definitely get the crowds. But, and of course, I had all the stats going back. To when I was a kid, you know, when I was, well, when I was a kid, when I was in my teenage years, when, you know, we played in front of, you know, in League One, in Division Three, in front of 25,000 people. So there was a, a long term uh, heritage of the team being well supported uh, through the dark years prior to the real war years when the team fluctuated badly, went up brilliantly. You know, chairman um, whose name has escaped me at the moment. Um, oh, well, Mike, Mike Bamba. Yeah. Mike, Mike, of course, yeah, mm-hmm. Mike Bamba. There we went into the Premiership, as it, well, it was not called that then, but it, is, it was the equivalent of the Premiership Division One. Uh, but then after that, you know, we plummeted down the leagues. And, uh, but I still knew, I was certain that if we had a because de- during that whole period of fallow period in the club's history Uh, you know after the three or four years in in the old division one and the great team led by Brian Horton you know including people like Lawrence and Ward uh, I mean what a super team they are they were Um, and you know but the, the investment in the team went down hugely from that but I knew that if we had a stadium you know, my whole strategy for the club when I took it over was that we will get we will get to the elite level of football because we will have a stadium that will allow us to generate revenue in order to buy good players. You know, that was that was it. I knew we had the stadium. And the big problem, of course, was the resistance to it locally, initially by the council. Uh, but then they they saw the benefits of it. And then we had, you know, three and three and a half years of public inquiries to go through. It, it was just unprecedented. The, you know, the the the, uh, the problems that we confronted, while I was trying to also, you know, put together a decent team with, albeit some very very good managers that I was able to uh, bring into the club.
3: It is quite it is quite amazing how you attracted the names manager names that you did considering a situation. I mean the likes of Mickey Adams, Peter Taylor, McGee, Steve Coppel. to all things considered, what you know where we were playing and the situation we were in to get managers like that, you know them, and then obviously for for Tony Blues to then bring in Gus Poyet as well after that, who obviously wasn't necessarily experienced but was a big name as well to get all of those guys along while we were playing at Dean was frankly amazing.
2: Well, I think, you know, I was able to persuade those managers that, that I had a vision for the club. And that, um, and when I gave, a lot of them knew some of the background of the club. I mean, for example, the first manager I brought in after Steve Gritt was Brian Horton, who knew mm. the club inside out, obviously. And that was one of the reasons I brought him, because he's been a playing legend. And uh, so that was not difficult to get Brian to come in, um, albeit we were playing on a shoestring, you know, with no budget or anything. Um, But the, you know, the the vision of where I knew we could be was what, and and I'm a decent, you know, salesman in terms of being able to persuade them that it was worth them having Brighton on their CV, because even if we went, only went from league, league one that would be on their cv
1: mm-hmm. you know
2: and of course we had we had um you know a lot of promotions in that period you know we as, as you know russ mentioned earlier but we had four uh, promotions three titles in 12 years at the yeah. wind which is you know the most successful period in the club's history in terms of in terms of league you know achievement Yeah, I mean, to be honest, considering, so I started watching
3: in 1990, and barring a playoff final the first year I was watching, it was, as you were saying, all downhill from there, and literally the first promotion at the, uh, with Dean, was my first promotion ever watching Brighton, it was, you know, with Dean was, I mean, I've seen us promoted now five times, and four of those have been at with Dean, so I'd always hold it in, you know, my my first season ticket was there as well, it was, I got a season ticket the first season, not the first time I'd had one, and yeah, I think the whole generation growing up, watching Albion at like, like my sort of age, it was the first success I'd ever seen. You know, so like watching Brighton before that was only like relegation or struggle or whatever, and suddenly we won two championships in a row. I mean, that was amazing.
2: Yeah, well, you know, um, we were on a roll. The players were so many strong characters in that squad of players. Mickey, it was Mickey Adams' team. Um, but, you know, there there were some real strong characters in that team, not just that team, you know, Paul Rogers, but all the way through the spine of the team, and um, you know, and they hit it off together, the st- playing style was attractive, we had a, a supreme player t- up top in Bobby Zamora, Bobby, you know, was able to hold the ball up and bring other players into it, as well as scoring over 30 goals in two successive seasons, which takes a bit of doing in any standard of football, let alone league football. I always knew that he'd play in the premiership and I knew that he was good enough to play for England. His Because of injuries, his career um, at that level was very limited, but he was good enough to play you know, for England and uh, that's how good he was. And he learned his craft really at Brighton because you know he stayed with us for three seasons uh, I was able to persuade him in the into the fourth season uh, and his his father that being in the championship would be uh, well worth it you know into that third season um I'd had an offer from Everton for him in the post in the close season after we won league 1 and uh I said to his dad and him that, you you know, you need a season in the championship to hone your skills and your experience. You will go to the premiership. Definitely. I have no doubt about that. It, that probably won't be with us because we won't get to the premiership until we have a stadium. But I'd like, I, I wish that you would be w- with us when we went to the premiership. But of course that did happen in a, in a roundabout way because Bobby came back and played for us in the, in the premiership so that was great you know he's a a very highly respected you know um, person in football Bobby and uh, he he certainly set standards at Brighton uh, in terms of you know he was a leader in his own way he wasn't club captain but he set an example an aspirational example for other players he got a lot out of other players in the team, because they wanted to, they were inspired by him, you know, there's no doubt about that. And How uh-huh. hard uh, did you have to
3: work to get Bristol Rovers to get, to let them go? Because I must admit, I didn't think he'd be back after we loaned him, he looked so good, he looked out of our league a little bit.
2: Of course he didn't, um, the manager at Bristol Rovers, who was a, a, a fellow called Ian Holloway, who you will have heard of, um, and it... My dealings with him and his chairman at Bristol Rovers just showed you that everyone in football can make mistakes. You know, even, you know, reputed managers, because all along he, Ian Holloway, first of all, never reckoned Bobby as a striker. You know, he went back after scoring six goals in six games with us. And we wanted to keep him on on loan for the rest of the season. Bobby, being a very good professional, said, no, I want to go back to my club. You know, my club is Bristol Rovers. And I'm sure Mr Holloway will have seen that I've scored six goals in six games. And he went back and he still didn't get in the first team. He never played in the first team, only once ever, right? And that was that he came on as a sub in a friendly match or something. And so I put in this offer at the end. So he went back to Bristol Rovers, didn't get in the first team. (coughs) At the end of the season, I said to Mickey and the board, you know, I'm going after Zamora. You know, we've got to get into this club. And I made an offer at the end, right at the end of the season, you know, just as it was after the final game for 60,000, which, you know, was a lot of money for a division, a League Two club, because that's where we were, to pay to a League One club, you know, which is where they were at that time. They wanted, believe it or not, a quarter of a million for someone who hadn't played in their first team, because they had 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 a succession of strikers and um, that they'd sold for that sort of money. So they kind of thought that, you know, with... That heritage would be able to produce strikers uh, that they should, could get that, and I said to the chairman Jeff Dunsford, you've got to be mad, Jeff. you know we're, we're in league two, we're not paying two hundred and fifty thousand, <laughs> so I said to mickey, you know I said, we're out of it, you know we we're, we're not we're not going to go beyond above that figure um sixty. I said to Mickey, they will be back during the close season. We go all through the close season and no sign of any approach back from Bristol Rovers. We played a friendly, that one friendly we were allowed to play a week before the season started. Oh, at yeah. Mickey, right. And <laughs> Mickey comes, we played. Um, I thought it was not Forrest, but it may have been. an earlier Anyway, Gary Hart, who Mickey wanted to play wide on the right. Played centre forward and scored two goals in that game. And we drew 2 2 with, I think it was Forrest, but they were in, and he was up against Des Walker, the England international. But Mickey came into the boardroom after the game, this, you know, the so called boardroom, and, with the, and said, Brilliant, what happened to Zamora, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> I said he'd be in, we'd, we'd have him, you know, pre season. So he said, Yeah, great, you know, well, He's not here, and I'm going to have to play Gary uh, Hart up front, which I don't want to do. I said, Mick, we've got a week to go before the season starts. If I don't hear from Jeff Dunsford Monday morning, I will phone him Monday afternoon, which will put me at a huge disadvantage because I'm chasing them. That's how it works, you know. he ten o'clock on the Monday morning, my phone goes, It's Jeff Dunsford on the phone. <laughs> Are you still interested in young Zamora? So me being canny said, oh, I'm not sure really, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to bite his arm off, really. I said, I'm gonna have to talk to my manager about it. <laughs> right. So give me ten minutes, fifteen minutes. <clears throat> I know he's at the track. I'll, I'll ring him and find out. Of course, I never rang Mickey because I knew, like, I, I you know, we both wanted him desperately. So I went back to Jeff Dunsford and, he, and I said, yeah, Mickey, you know, Mickey Adams, you know, wants to give the, the young guy a chance. So he said to me, well, okay, the, the price is at the 250000 So I said, why are you wasting my time? You know, I'm the chairman of a League Two club. We can't. We haven't got two hundred and fifty thousand to pay on this pay on uh, spend on this player who's ne- never been in your first team. I said, how can you charge want that sort of money? I said, I'm prepared to pay a hundred thousand. Right, that is the limit. And he said, well, I'm not sure. You know, we we, you know. I said, he said, he said, I'm not actually sure we want to sell him. I said, well, why are you wasting my time? So he said, well, the manager thinks he might have a, have a future as a left sided midfield player. <laughs> 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 because it just shows you, even these you know, illustrious managers, and even Holloway had quite a you know, good reputation, they can make them amazing mistakes. So I said, look, let me have a word. Can I have a word to you? to Ian Holloway. So I said, he said, I don't think I don't, of course. If, I said, give me, give me his number. I rang Holloway. Hello, Mr Chairman. You know, he says with his crystal accent. He said, I said, Bobby Zamora, um, Ian. My manager, Mick, oh, Mickey, said, yeah, Mickey, uh, good manager. You know, he's going like that. I'm to You know, he's, I said, Zamora, is he figuring your playing spot, Season and he said, I might want to try him left side midfield, but not as a striker. I don't see him as a striker. <laughs> like Bobby Zamora is the guy he's about. I, said, I said. Well, my manager is probably wrong, Mickey, he's probably wrong, but he wants to try him as a striker, you know. So I said, Come on, Ian, you don't really think you know, he's not going to be in your squad, but let us have him. You know, we. You're probably right. Mickey's probably wrong. <laughs> you know, he said, "Oh, all right." You know, I'll, I'll speak to the chairman. So I said, "Don't worry, I'll speak to the chairman." But you're happy for him. He said, "Gary," yeah. he said, um, "He's not going to be a big striker." though That was his final word. <laughs> 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 Him a chart for Mickey a chance to make him into a striker, you know, and, and say thank you very much. I and, and said, Ian's happy with it, and he'll, he'll confirm that to you. Um, and, you know, we're going to um, probably
1: play the striker, not as a striker, as a midfield. Unbelievable, then, isn't it? <laughs>
2: I then put the phone down and rang Mickey Adams, who knew nothing about this conversation right? And when I told him uh, make room on the treatment table because we've got a player coming in for a medical this afternoon Mick. and he said, who? Oh, what do you mean? I said his name's Mora, he's a young lad from Mickey dropped the phone virtually. <laughs> like, he was so delighted. And that's how Bobby back to the car. You know, I mean, it was brilliant. He and uh, the rest is, as they say, you know, it's a cliche. But in this case, it really was history. It was club history because he never looked back. When he came, he started scoring goals immediately. And, you know, so basically the thing, that team of, who,
3: who played in League Two that season and won the league was pretty much, without, with a few changes, the same team that almost played up in the championship two seasons later. You know, oh, the, exactly. The, that squad was, stayed the same, didn't they like,
2: This mm-hmm. team that played in League 1 the following season was almost identical. You know, it was the same team. We won that... We won League 2, and then we won League 1. You know, um, and that's how good they
3: were. And... Uh, and then almost stayed up again the next year. One, we were one game away from staying
2: in the Championship as well. Yeah. But and, We were only one if, game away from staying in the Championship, weren't we? Exactly. And if Zamora... And that was the season where I'd persuaded him and his dad to stay. You know, if he hadn't been out with a bad injury for yeah. virtually half the first half of the season, he still scored 14 goals that season with only playing half the season. You know, yeah. I'd have no doubt that if he'd uh, been fit all season, we would not have got relegated. I also would have had. Steve Koppel earlier as manager and Mm. you know under Steve Koppel when he joined us during that season we were a top 10 team you know the results that Steve was able to generate immediately uh, coinciding very closely with Bobby coming back from injury uh, you know we started playing and uh, winning you know games that previously we'd been losing so it was a, a very interesting season because Bobby just, he just, you know, he just dreamily played in at, at that level without any changing any of his demeanour, any of his technique. He had the technique. He could hold the ball up. He was good in the air. You know, um, his reading with Paul Watson was, was almost paranormal. Free you know, kicks. Their oh. reading of each other. You know, I mean, a left-footed right back is very unusual in football, and we made real capital out of that with Bobby. You know, with Paul delivering the ball near post, not far post, and Bobby breaking away from defenders and often just, you know, heading the ball in the net with nowhere near it or tapping it in the net because they didn't go, they didn't follow him. He came round behind the back of them and went to the other side of the goal.
3: I'm sure I've read or heard. Bobby say that Paul Watson was the best left-footed player or left foot he'd ever played with, or something like that. Even though yeah. he was in Premier League with loads of very high-quality players, Paul Watson was the best left
2: footed. Paul could deliver a ball on a sixpence, you know, and that's what Bobby, you know, loved because he he knew that if he went into that space in the right channel, right-hand channel, that Paul would find him. And, um, you know, we scored a lot of goals, uh, both Bobby scoring, but also making goals from that position, you know, where he squared the ball across the box. But, um,
3: yeah. I do find it funny, though, in things like that, because surely the scouts, a bit like with Pascal Grosch's turn and that sort of thing, you'd have thought the scouts would pick it up and at
2: some point say, watch out for this, but they just didn't seem to be able to pick it up at all. It was. Well, we, when the first game we played at, in that, in that, in the championship that season 2 and 2 and 3 Bobby was, had stayed and we were playing away at Burnley who'd come fourth in the league the previous year and here we were the new kids on the block um, we went to Turf Moor and absolutely outplayed Burnley and Bobby scored uh, a goal he had a goal disallowed um, from a from a Watson free kick where he you know disallowed for offside when he wasn't offside, uh, and and you know that team was a was a a very good team. We had some very good players in that team, um, but you know unfortunately, you know Martin Hinshelwood was the manager. He did his best, Martin, but he relied too much on the young players you know, not a good time to bring in three or four young players together. Mm. Bring in one or two, you know, maximum. They're in a higher league. All the players are in a higher league. Um, And then to have three or four, you know, young players coming into the team as well, which Martin wanted to do, uh, didn't really work. And it began to to affect the senior players in the the team, like Danny Culloch and so on. Um so we went into a bad spin, tailspin of losing games. Um anyway, um that's all part of the Withbean years and uh you know Withbean is a no one, no Albion fan should ever forget the role that Withdean played in the history of the team because as you say, Peter, uh you know, we had four promotions in that in that from that venue. And many good times and, you know, superb cup results there against Man City, for example, in 2008. Another team who definitely didn't fancy with Dean. <laughs>
3: <laughs> another, another team who definitely didn't fancy with Dean. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Joe, the Brazilian guy who looked like he was like, cool. yeah anywhere else in the
1: world well this is the thing with that era what, what I learned about that was I mean Dick you inherited Steve Britt from through Brian Halls and Jeff Wood we got into Mickey Adams just before the Wood Dean opened and that period just coincided so well you had this you had gallows humor you had backs against the wall you had a manager in Mickey Adams and a set of players under him who really epitomized what we needed at the time which was this back-against-the-wall attitude, this camaraderie and battling yeah, and everything. Perfect. You, know, you look, at, look at the team, don't you? Kuypers, you've got Cullip, you've got Carpenter, you've got, um, obviously, later on, Bobby's Mora joined as well. That was a, a real core, and there was a lot of characters <laughs> on there in that team. And I think we forged most of that success, I think, through having those characters and some later characters that came into the equation, Guy Butters and so on. Um, and and I, for me, it just... There was a lot of happy times up with Dean, despite the, ironically, despite the uh, the overall bigger picture being a stressful one. Um, yeah, it seemed to rain every week. We had, we had a lot of funny stories, though. There's um, an avid listener to the show, Keith. Hello, Keith, if you're listening. He's a great guy, Keith Tompkins, and he's... um I remember he used to go, he'd got a bit of a weak bladder and he'd go and have a, I'd go to the loo on about 35 minutes every game. And he said, Do you know what, sort it, I'll just go and get all the teas in. So he'd be buying about eight or nine teas for everyone. At one point he phoned in the order and, um, yeah, we had people buying and we're saying, oh, anyone else want a tea? You know, about 40, 50 people around us all laughing. You know, we'd had stories like that. There was the pitch invasion with the guy with the wheelchair getting his, we were stuck in the pitch, and you had yeah, a, yeah a rocket guy. man, yeah. There's rocket man. You had a guy getting kicked out. We had a forced leg that came off at one point, and mate, yeah, just all of those stories. But but what we did, I mean, that's obviously for the fans. But what we did on the pitch, um, for me, I, I, as Peter said, load of great managers, and I think, um, what also epitomised that era was in itself was you, Dick. You were very much, you said you, you could sell the club very well. And you certainly could. And you seem to be in the public eye disproportionately for the status that we were at in terms of our league position. And I think I really, it seemed to me, it really did seem to help, um, elevate us in the public eye and allow us to, A, to get those kind of managers in and some of those kind of players, but also to maybe help our cause in the, in the longer term for getting a permanent home.
2: Well, it became a a national story, the, the Brighton story yeah <clears throat> um the battle you know against archer became a national story because uh as paul hayward you know a very good friend of mine and a daily telegraph writer uh and sports journalist of the year several times but who's um, mm-hmm. you know local guy real albion fan yeah. uh, he he used the phrase once that, you know the archer uh, saga you know was a a parable for modern football because it was one of the he was Archer was one of the first people who got control of a football club and was not interested in the actual team you know in itself he was only interested in the club's assets which were mainly the goldstone ground and there it was on a prime piece of real estate in hove and that's all he was interested in and uh you know he the fans initially rose up against him, he paid lip service to you know listening to what they had to say, but he was really not he wasn't going to do anything uh only if it suited him um and you know it because then I joined the battle i you know launched a proper battle against him um it became a, a story of, you know, a, a fan who's the chairman against this <laughs> a northern oligarch, we could say, um, who was not in the slightest bit interested in the outcome of how the team played, which was one of the reasons why we went down further and further when he was in charge Um, only interested in the business proposition. And it was, I mean, as a result of that, you know, It became a national story. I was actually on Newsnight three times in the space of a few months. It was, was, you know, they were seeing it as the time when television was really getting its grips into football. You know, the huge potential of top level football. And here's a little club called Brighton (laughs) fighting against that momentum of big football. And you know, so I was cast in the role of this, you know, Pied Piper of Hamlin, who was coming along to try and, you know, overthrow the um, the local sheriff and the local, you know, uh, owner of the big mansion on the hill, sort of thing. And um, so it, be, but it was a, a story that was very much uh, the the media got hold of in a big way because they could. You know, the it, it signs were there that other <clears throat> clubs were going to have this type of problem, and it was all to do with the assets of the club and the potential of the club being valued through the value of television audiences, right? And I knew some, I knew a lot about that because I came from the media world myself. <clears throat> so, um, but it, it was a an incredible time because Archer, as I say. He, he was only involved in Brighton because it was a, a deal that he managed to um, manoeuvre with his mate, Greg Stanley, you know, who was the local guy um, and Archer, you know, became a friend of him because they worked together or they were in the, in the same company. And Archer saw an opportunity, got rid of all the other directors who gave them their money back. Um, and so all of a sudden he's got control of the club. And then they started changing the articles of association of the club uh, to their benefit. And, um, you know, I mean, I always, the Lottie was nothing to do with any of that. He was just a puppet, you know. The real villain of the piece was Archer. And, uh, you know, he he needed to be taken down um, in whatever way was possible. And uh, it it was only going to be money that did it. Uh, despite all the the other type of protests, um, but even then, it wasn't just money. It was the arbitration process, mediation process, that David Davies at the FA um, commissioned when it became clear that he was just, Arch was just deliberately prevaricating over issues that where he'd agree to me a uh, deal with, uh, he'd agree something with me, uh, and then. One would be, say, opening the club's books to due diligence, which is what you need to do if you're taking over another, a business. And then he, then he would, so our accountants would go to his office and then he wouldn't allow them in, stuff like that. I mean, it was just, it just went on and on and on. And he was always going back on what he'd agreed. <clears throat> um, and he just thought he could see me off. That was the point he thought he could just that i'd lose interest i would just give up you know uh but he he counted he took me for granted in a way that you know was not going to happen i wasn't going to give up and uh so you know we fought this ridiculous battle over you know getting on for a year uh and he was still had his sticky fingers on the club and then david davis who was then the executive director of the uh, communications director of the FA, uh, had seen what was going on at Brighton and felt that the FA should take a role because the football league weren't interested in doing anything. You know, all they did was impose a ludicrous performance bond on me and the club. You know, when we went to Gillingham and we had to go to Gillingham, the club had been allowed to sell the ground Uh, so we had to go to Gillingham and then what did the Football League do they imposed a 500,000 pound performance bond on the club which I had to pay and it sat in a bank account in the Football League when a half a million pound is a lot of money today let alone 25 years ago you know when that money should have been used to help the club it, it, the football league came up with this bright idea that we'll take half a million quid off him, you know uh, off the club and and uh, store it in our bank account and yeah. unless they come back to you know to brighton within 3 years
1: yeah I remember we were talking about that on the the other episode and it really is ludicrous can we talk about advers- against adversity and that really does sum it up doesn't it also you mentioned taking um archer down <laughs> sounds quite dramatic sounds like a hollywood movie actually yeah, um, well, i mean and that on that subject um i mean i'm, I'm not sure about why well, didn't that. you says <laughs> yeah. says yeah. russ <laughs> yeah. well I've, I've been more diplomatic no but i mean that High concept action blockbusters is probably not, but there they should have been a documentary about this, shouldn't there? I mean, what a story. Um, no one's ever really done one, have they? There have been to DVDs, there have been accounts told, but not really an out-and-out cinematic release documentary. Well, a lot, the thing, there's a lot of lot of taste for that nowadays as well. When you go, when you go through from that period to, mm. you know, through,
2: you know, me being able to eventually prizes his hand on the bar, and then... Yeah then save the club and then start rebuilding the club. And now we're, and where Tony's taken, I mean, I was in charge for 12 years um, and, and Tony's taken it on from there. And of course, when we got promotion to the Premier League, that was almost exactly 20 years after I'd taken over. So the media got, you know, saw that as a, an amazing story. Um, and you know, yeah, I mean, it is a it's is a real drama of, of of a story of a sports story that shows you know from the depths of despair to um, you know to well we're in we're in la la land so to speak <laughs> in the sense that keeping the film references going <laughs> we are consolidating ourselves in the in the Premiership. Uh, yeah. We could do with a few points right now, but, you know, we are, the progress that has been made in, in the club, you know, since we've been in the premiership is steady. Uh, we need to, you know, press on, but I think that, you know, it's being done very well. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that whole story is, is really an amazing story of what can happen in sport. <clears throat> and the power of sport, you know, don't forget the community side of all this, which mm. I was very strong on about giving something back to our community, and uh, you know. So that's another aspect of this, and it is quite incredible that sports teams in the rest of the world do not do anything like we do in English football, you know, with our communities. Um, you know, there's nothing like this in America. In ter- you know, those. NFL teams, the baseball teams, they have big followings at home. You know, they play – well, obviously, baseball is in a a smaller stadium, relatively, but, you know, the NFL stadiums are all, um, you know, holding 70,000-plus, and, you know, there is uh, nowhere near that. There's there's virtually no away supporters at those games. And often the distances are immense, obviously, but often they're not. Mm. You know, York, um, a New York team playing in Boston is only a couple of hundred miles. It's like going up to, you know, Sheffield or something, mm. going down to Philadelphia from New York, 100 odd miles, Baltimore. So there's, you know, they're short distances, a lot of them. Obviously, going from the East Coast to the West Coast is much more, but they have no community system where um coming out from fans you know going to away games is the whole role of the community in the, the club in the community which we've taken uh, to a new level in in england uh, and that's unique in the in the world um, and i'm very proud that the Albion has been a leader of that
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a very good note to end the first part of tonight's conversation, actually. That's a a nice rounded point there, Dick. So I think we'll stop um, stop the first part there and um, we'll resume it in a moment after a little bit of a tea break, shall we? Okay. And so concludes the third part of our four-part special with Dick Knight, which is the first half of our second conversation that we've had with him. Um, We've really enjoyed his company. Thank you very much to Dick for joining us. And we'll have the fourth part coming hot on its heels in the next day or two. Now, if you have been enjoying listening to this podcast and you haven't already done so, would you be able to review us and rate us online? That would be great. If you can go to Apple, if you do listen on there, and hit the five stars and write a review, all of that helps with the algorithms and would be very much appreciated. It will put us up the rankings and maybe help us to get more exciting guests on the show. Also, if on any of the other platforms that you may listen to, whether it be Spotify or any of the other smaller ones, if there's any review options there, please do the same. Anything you can do will help us and would be very, very much appreciated. Also, we are now signed up to Patreon, which is a system where you can subscribe for as little as £1 a month to donate towards your favourite podcasts. So if you did want to support us uh, financially with as modest or as much an amount as you would like, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Brighton Rock Pod. That's Patreon spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N and the full address www.patreon.com forward slash brighton rock pod if you can help us fantastic if you can't no problem at all we will keep all of our material free to air and free to access so you won't have to pay to access anything it's simply a donation option if you can help us with that superb but either way round, we hope you're all still continuing to enjoy listening to the podcast and we will have our next one the fourth part of dick knight's chat with us coming up very soon in the meantime stand or fall up the Albion.